studying together the book of Lamentations. And this morning we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3. So if you don't happen to have a Bible, um, Larry is going to run to the back and grab one and you can just put your hand in the air and he'll bring that to you. Just so that you can see what I'm saying this morning is not, uh, not something that I'm making up, but it's something that is written to us uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, it's given to us for our edification and encouragement. You know, this morning I was encouraged just singing together and just hearing voices together. Um, just the culmination of our voices is, is a good thing um, to have. And I was just, I was reminded of why it is that we sing together. Um, one, because scripture commands us to do it together. But then two, because um, it's God's chosen means of stirring our affections for him. Um, singing the truth that we're singing up here this morning, thinking, singing the things that we sang this morning, they're not just words, they're not just a, a way to, God didn't just appoint us to sing so that we can lead into a sermon or lead into um, a time together or uh, so that we can go out throughout the course of the week, but in, in, in essence to stir our affections and to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So when we do that together, that has meaning. It has there's intentionality behind it. It's not just something that we choose to do um, because everybody else and throughout church history has done it. It's something that that is important to us because of what it engenders in us, what it spurs us on to as a people. Okay. So I just wanted to say that because I'm just encouraged. Even even just being able to worship with my children this morning and just like have my kids and have three three enter and just to have them there. And um, just thinking about that second to last song that we sang about God's love for us and how I love my kids, how I have this, but it's such an imperfect expression of love. Um, it's not something that, my face mic is falling. Um, it's not something that, uh, it's not something that, that I am even fully capable of understanding, the love that God demonstrates for us. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning um, as we get into chapters two and three of Lamentations. So if you're there, if you haven't been with us, uh, the question is kind of like, why? Why are we Why are we looking at limitations? Because it is somewhat of a, a depressing text. It's not something that, that we typically go for to and look at uh, to, 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 for, for hope or for, for an uplifting word in our lives. But at the same time, it is good news. It is a proclamation of what God is doing in his people and, and like we talked about last week when we looked at verse or at chapter one, um, this book really presents an incredible portrait of God's boundless commitment to the restoration of His people. Um, everything that God is doing throughout the course of redemptive history is giving us a picture, is painting a picture for us of God's uh, purposes in this world, and that's to restore, to set aside a people for Himself. We saw that last week as we processed through chapter 1 and some of the language that was contained there, um, we saw that the ultimate expression, even though we looked at the destruction of Jerusalem in 580 BC or 587 BC, we looked at that event and talked a little bit about that, um, we see that that ultimately is pointing us to the person of Jesus and the ultimate expression of restoration that would come um, um, about 600 years later. Um, and, then, and then not just for one people focused in one time, but for all peoples for all time, that event, that, uh, that expression of restoration was given to all people so that all people might look upon Jesus, look upon the cross, and be saved. 
So again, this book is written by the prophet Jeremiah in the wake of this destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. And, and actually, we talked about this for a, a minute, but I kind of want to think about this just for a couple more minutes because we're getting into the second, of, second and third of five poems. And these are five expressions of grief, five formal expressions of grief, probably after a, a significant amount of time had passed um, for the nation of Israel, um, before they were restored back to uh, Jerusalem uh, around uh, in, in about 70 years from this time. But, but some years had passed, Jeremiah had processed this event, and this is, this is I think I said last week, this is not a, 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 a reactionary diary entry. This is a, this is a formal expression uh, through poetry of the grief and the lament and the, the mourning that Jeremiah feels. So we're going to look at the second and third uh, poem today. The reason that I've chosen to do chapter one and then and then uh, chapters two and three, and then in a couple of weeks after our celebration Sunday next week, we'll get into chapters uh, four and five. But the reason I've done that is because of some language cues, and I just want to point these out to you. I think this is just helpful. It's helpful for us to see this. If you look at verse one, and I've even titled our sermons based on on this. So if you look at verse or in verse one of chapter one, Jeremiah writes, "How lonely sits the city that was full of people." And then in chapter two, verse one, "How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud." And then if you look at chapter four, verse one, we see how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold. Is changed. We see one word there that, that is repeated um, to start each of those sentences, and that word is how. And in the Hebrew, that's actually uh, the way that you would eulogize someone. You'd actually start out with, with a statement like that. And so th there's sort of almost like three movements in these five poems, and we see that they're both, they're all started there with the, the word how. So this morning, as we get into chapters two and three, keep that in mind. And we see how lonely sits the city, how the Lord in his anger setting Zion under a cloud, and then the gold growing dim, and how the pure gold has changed. Um, and this section that we're going to look at this morning, verses uh, 2, 1, all the way through the end of, of chapter 3, is 88 verses. So we're not going to read the whole thing together, although I'm going to point out, I'm going to highlight some things that we read as we go on. So, so as we moved out of week one and under, began to develop this understanding of God's commitment to the restoration of his people, um, we, we, we need to then start to think a little bit more about some of the language that's contained here. And, and if you've read the book of Lamentations, you'll see in chapter three, there's, there's this pretty famous passage, right? pretty much uh, in, in, verses, in chapter three, verses 22 through 25, um, in particular, we hear this, we quote this, we put this on throw pillows, um, we, we, we stencil it on our walls. <laughs> the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So if, if, you, if you're reading through Lamentations, you get to that and you're like, oh, finally some relief. Finally, some relief from this relenting, um, from this relentless mourning that's going on in this book. And there is some repetitive nature to it. Um, but it's important for us to see then um, how that passage, how those three or four verses fits within the, the context of the larger thing that Jeremiah is expressing. And so that gives us our big idea this morning, and that's kind of what I want to key on. 
All God does in his restorative work is an expression of his love, his mercy, and his faithfulness, and his sufficiency. Again, all God does in his restorative work is an expression of his love, his mercy, his faithfulness, and his sufficiency. Those are the kind of four concepts that are expressed in verses 22 through 25 in, in uh, Lamentations chapter 3. Um, but we see what I really want to press home in and in our time together is the fact that those four things are not being in, expressed in spite of what's going on, but th th what's going on is happening because of those four things, right? My goodness, this keeps falling off my face. Okay, there we go. So what I said there, again, is that um, these four things are not happening in spite of what's going on in the destruction of Jerusalem and the restoration of God's people, but, but are actually happening, what's happening, what's going on with the destruction of Jerusalem is actually happening because of these four things. Um, and the relationship there is really important for us to see um, as we move forward. Hopefully that will become more clear as we talk about these, these two chapters. So between these two poems, in, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, they really sort of break down into to six unique parts. Last week we talked about in chapter 1 that there are two unique parts, and some of this is, some of this is a recap for us. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna say these out and then we're gonna focus on a few of them together and then we're gonna explore the takeaways specifically from chapters two and three of this book. Okay, so between these two poems, six unique chapters two or six unique parts, three in chapter two and three in chapter three. If you look in verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, you see the results of the devastation of Jerusalem. And this sort of mirrors the first half of chapter 1. And then, and then we go into this section in, two, in 11 through 19. This is the necessity of crying out, the necessity of expressing yourself, um, expressing um, what's going on to God. And then right at the end of chapter 2 in verses 20 through 22, we see a request for the acknowledgement of suffering. We, a request that God look down and see and grant relief for the suffering that's going on in Jerusalem. This is similar to the end of chapter 1 that we talked about last week. You'll see some parallels there between uh, 1 verse 11 and 1 verse 20. And, and, then, and then with that and with 2 verse 20, it's almost, almost like the, the same expression. When you look at 2 verse 20, look, O Lord, and see uh, a call for God to see the suffering, see the mourning, see the grief that's taking place. And if you look at the, the second half of verse 11 in chapter 1, look, O Lord, and see, and then in verse 20, um, I'm sorry, in verse 20 of chapter 1, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. So we see these textual cues here that, 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 that point us back then to chapter 1, and we see this, this idea recycled then in chapter 2. We move into chapter 3 then in verses 1 through 24, probably the largest section here. This is, this is recounting the perseverance in the face of suffering. The perseverance in what's going on um, in the life of Israel, um, in the life of Israel, especially in Jerusalem. And then in verses uh, 25 through 39, this is just a response to God's goodness and his restorative work. And that's contained within, um, that's, a, that's sort of coming out of that, that popular passage in verses 22 through 25. I'm throwing a lot at you right here, but we'll, 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 we'll dive into some of these things. And then in verses, three, er, verses 40 of chapter 3 through the end of the chapter, there's just this self-examination, this, this response, um, and then the prayer from Jeremiah for restoration. 
So again, let's let's look at a couple of these and, and just just kind of like dive into them for a couple of minutes, and then we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna apply what we see and what we find there. So we look at in, in chapter two, verses one through ten. I'm gonna read this for us. Uh, chapter two, verses one through ten, and we'll talk a little bit about it. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdoms and its rulers. He has cut down his fierce anger. All, he has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He is burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand, set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delight, delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become an, like an enemy, and he's swallowed up Israel. He's swallowed up all his palaces, and he's laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied the daughter of Judah, or multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, and has delivered into the hand of his enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised the clamor of the house of the Lord and of the day of the festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground, and her ruins has ruined and broken her bars. Her kings and princes are among the nations. Their, the law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Okay, so like I said, this section in particular is just recounting the devastation of Jerusalem. It's recounting what's happened um, as the Babylonians have come into uh, Jerusalem, have carried the people away in slavery. Remember last week we talked about isolation and oppression and restlessness sort of as these three keys to our understanding of what's going on in the heart of Jeremiah as he writes in the book of Lamentations. So we see again the recounting of the result of the devastation of Jerusalem. But there's, there's some interesting and unique language here that I want to point out. And to start this second poem, Jeremiah wants to make sure that his readers feel the weight. That's why there's some repetition here. Um, but then he wants them to feel weight coming at it maybe from a different angle. So one result is the cover of cloud, as we see in verse 1, uh, that is expressed, Right? And this, this is interesting for us, because I think when, when we see this language, I think that we should go back to, if you're familiar with your Bible, you should go back to the book of Exodus and think about what the cloud represents there for the people of God. What does the cloud represent? It represents a place where, where God's presence would manifest, and he was leading his people through the wilderness. He was removing them from slavery. Right? And so there is a direct contrast here to, to that in particular, that particular event. There is a cover of cloud now, instead of one pillar that the people were being led by, there is a cover of cloud over all things, and it demonstrates to us some inaccessibility. But I don't think Jeremiah used this, this metaphor for, for, uh, without some significant purpose here. 
direct contrast to what had happened in the Exodus. This was being carried away into slavery as opposed to being brought out of slavery. This cloud is an expression of absence of God's favor in the direction of the, in the life of his people. And this is, the, again, the inverse of Exodus. And then if we look at verse 2, as we come out of that, as we come out of that, that verse there, and that understanding of the cloud, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy. And this will become very important to us later as we continue to look at, at some of this text this morning. But this will become very important later because we see, without mercy, he has swallowed up his people. And this is just an expression of God's anger and his wrath. The brokenness and the dishonor that they showed towards God resulted in God pouring out his wrath. You see in the second half of that verse, in his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. The things that they trusted, the things that they saw as strong were broken. They were snapped in two. They were taken away from them. They were removed from them. Where they placed their trust, that was gone. And then if you look down even a little bit farther in verse 6. He has laid waste to his booth like a garden laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and his fierce indignation had spurred king and priest. We see that he has laid waste to his booth, and what that means is that he has taken away his dwelling place altogether. The place that he dwelled, the temple, was now laid waste. We see these festivals and these Sabbaths that were such an integral part of life in Jerusalem had been removed. Nobody, we saw this again in, 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 uh, in, in chapter 1, that nobody was coming to these festivals anymore because of the state of Jerusalem. These things that the people would have rejoiced in, that they would have found joy, that they would have taken delight in, have been removed from them. That access to God's presence through the temple had been revoked and the things that they celebrated would no longer be celebrated. And the result of this devastation of Jerusalem is God's absence and inaccessibility under a cover of cloud. Being taken out of slavery, back into slavery, that's where, we, that's where we go. So we'll talk about this idea more specifically when we get to takeaways. What this means for us as, as a people. Now I want to jump with you. Let's, let's jump to uh, chapter 3. Let's jump to chapter 3 and let's look at verses 1 through, uh, let's, let's, say, let's go through 24. Let me just read that. I am the man who has seen affliction. With the rod of his wrath he has driven and brought me into darkness without a new light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayers. He has blocked my way with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has seated me, sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made, that sounds terrible, and he made my, me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. 
Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me, but I, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So what we see here then is this expression of perseverance in the face of suffering. And verse 21 kind of becomes our key to see that, right? When he says, but this I will call to mind. I will call to mind and remember the relationship here. Remember the relationship between verses 21 through 24, 25, and, and what's come previously and what will come after in this book. And it's that these things lie at the, the very heart of what God is doing. God's character, his nature, his, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness, his sufficiency lie at the heart of what's happening in Jerusalem, not in spite of it. These things are not... They're not, they don't stand in contrast, but they are the support system for it. I'll give you a couple of examples in a, in a couple of minutes. But Jeremiah is spending all of this time describing his own personal grief or the grief of the one who is enduring the suffering of the events of Jerusalem. But when we get to verse 21, there's that shift, right? Calling to mind, having hope, love, mercies, and faithfulness. Again, not in contrast. But because of this, this is kind of what we talked about last week. And I just want to impress this, right? I want to talk about this because we see that if God is so committed to the restoration of his people, these sorts of things are never off the table. The destruction of the city is never off the table for God. But for us as people who, who stand as those who are redeemed, who have trusted Christ, we recognize that that's never going to be a reality for us. That all of that wrath, all of that anger that God had, had expressed towards Jerusalem will, was diverted off of us and placed on Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this and we say, man, there's a lot going on here and it looks very bleak for the people of God. And, and we look at it and we think to ourselves, how in the world could, could this be happening to, to God's people we think to ourselves, and we, we, we then understand, have a greater understanding of the love that God has shown for us in sending his son, because all of this will never be a reality for us. And so, because of that, we see the perseverance in the face of suffering, because of the understanding of who God is from Jeremiah, and we even have a greater understanding of who God is. We have a greater expression of his love for us in his own son, Jesus so let's hold that thought, and we'll come back to that thought again also. The last section I want to look at is just, just a few verses um, in, in, and towards the end of Lamentations 3. And I just want to think about for a second, let's just go verses 40 through 42 for the sake of time. <coughs> Jeremiah writes this, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgotten. So we looked at this. This is just This is just an <coughs> um, expression of, of what is going on around him in an honest assessment of himself in light of in Jerusalem and the people of God in general, in light of the devastation that's happened. So like look at the corporate nature of this too. Let us 
test and examine our ways. Let us lift up our hearts and hands. It's important for us to see that this is not just one man's um, introspection, but the introspection of an entire corporate community. Let us examine and test our ways. This is an open acknowledgement of the sinful state that God's people find themselves in. And then in verse 41, we see the testing and the examining, the, the fruit of that, lifting up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven, presenting oneself fully before God, and then acknowledging the error and the sin before God in verse 42, we have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. That, 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 we look at that and we think to ourselves, God is not forgiven? What does that mean? This is pointing us to God's justice. This is pointing us to the fact that God is just. That, he, that sin will not go un, unpunished in his economy. This is a necessary part of the whole process. The whole process of lamentation is to look inward and to think to ourselves, what, what is it that's inside of us? What's the cause for this punishment? Why is this restorative process necessary? This is, this is part of the truth of the gospel for us. If we, if we hear that, that God sent his son to die on our behalf, we also have to openly acknowledge that we needed to be redeemed. We also need to openly acknowledge the fact that we were in a sinful state. That God, God didn't just do that just for fun. He did it because the people were broken. Because we as people, sinful humanity, coming out of Adam, are broken people. And that a way needed to be restored in that way was Jesus Christ. Okay. So we've kind of looked at a few sections here, and I, I hope that we can move then into some takeaways and just think about a couple things. And in this time, too, what I want you to do is start to orient your minds. We're, we're going to participate together at the Lord's table this morning. What I want you to do is begin to orient your minds towards that and think about these things in light of, in light of that. Because we know that what we're going to do shortly is an expression. We're going to, we're going to take the, 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 the juice, we're going to drink it, and, and recognize and remember Christ's blood shed on our behalf for the remission of sins. And then we're going to take the bread and we're going to remember Jesus' body broken on the cross. We're going to remember that the righteousness, that a perfect life lived, um, um, was put forward as a substitute for us so that we could have righteousness, so that we could stand before God and, um, and be free. So these are the takeaways. I just have two of them for us this morning. The first one is this. Kind of keying off that first section we talked about at the beginning of chapter 2. If we are in Christ, there is no cover of cloud. If we are in Christ, there is no cover of cloud. Let me explain what I mean by that. The inaccessibility that Jeremiah felt is not a reality if we are in Christ for a, a couple of reasons. And the first is this. If you consider what, what uh, Luke writes about the church in the book of Acts, we see a couple of professions on that God does not dwell in a building made with human hands. Right? Part of the fact, part of the problem with the fact that, that when, when God destroyed or, or allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed by her enemies, um, part of that was taking away this access to God that came through the temple. But we know now that in, in the, in, as the church, we know now that, as is written in Acts verses for us, in chapter 7, verse 48, and then 17, 24, that God does not dwell in a building made with human hands. The temple is where the presence of God dwelt, but that was de destroyed. And the, the question is, well, how is God accessible to us? We see this in narrative history. We see God's 
placing his presence in specific places. First in the garden, as he walked with Adam and Eve. Second, in the tabernacle. And then, and then in the temple. And then, as we move away from that, then onto Jesus. The, the God-man, Jesus, came to earth um, fully God, fully man, the presence of God dwelled on him fully. And now, as after Jesus is ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, he has sent us a helper, the Spirit of Christ. The, the Spirit, of Christ, Spirit of Christ dwells, it, it is situated, it is fixed on the people of God, on the church. The church, God's people, has been clearly given the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is God in the very presence of God in us. No longer is this structure necessary, but the church, the people of God, are the temple, the place where God has chosen to manifest His presence. That's why we come here and we say the church is not a building. The presence of God is no more apparent here than it is when we go from here and act as those who are on mission with the church. As we act out our lives, as we carry out our lives, the, the presence of God is, is on us. It goes with us. We don't come to it. It is with us at all times. We read even this morning in Hebrews to, to kick off our service. We read um, in Hebrews 4 that Jesus is a great high priest. And, and there's a couple other places that give us that indicator, both in the book of Hebrews and the, and the book of Romans. But we understand that, that Jesus, this great high priest, he is making intercession on our behalf. This is the second reason that we are no longer under a cover of cloud. One, because he does not dwell in a temple made with human hands. And two, because, uh, because Jesus is the great high priest who is making an intercession on our behalf. No longer is sin a separating factor for us. Jesus bore that on himself and created access, unmitigated access to God the Father. Jesus went into the cloud and bore our sin and went from us and he, then he defeated sin and death. And now we have access to God through him. That access does not come and go, but it is consistent and constant. So no longer the question for us, this question gets asked a lot in our world. I think, well, where is God in this? Where is God in this? The fact of the matter is the church, we know exactly where God is. We know exactly where God is. When something goes wrong in our world or there's some major tragedy that happens in our world, we say, well, where is God? Where was God in that? We know exactly where he was. His spirit dwells within us. He rests. It's fixed on his church. It, it, it does. It, the, the spirit, he, can, he, he convicts us of sin. He illumines God's word to us in the pages of scripture. He seals us as God's children, as sons and daughters of God, and assures us of that fact. He empowers us to live Christ-like, honoring lives. Now, I want to offer just a brief caveat here, just one, one brief caveat. Because we, just because, okay, so like Jerusalem, right, there was, there was an inaccessibility to God there, but we know that that's not a reality for us because of the two reasons that I just posed to you. That does not mean that you're going to feel like God is present in every moment of every day in your world. It doesn't mean that. What it doesn't mean is that, that you, you're, you're not going to have times where you're thinking to yourself, what on earth? It's not a bad question to ask where God is at. What's bad is to not recognize that he is present within you. And we know that indwelling sin 
sometimes rises up and creates barriers for us, creates problems for us, it robs us of our assurance, it, it dulls, it, 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 it ch takes our minds and dulls it to the to the understanding of what God's word is communicating to us about who he what about who he is and who we are in light of it. So, so, but, but, but then as we come out of that, the, the gospel understanding, the, the gospel implications of that extend far beyond that and straight through that and say, despite the fact that you are living in, in sin because of the indwelling sin that resides in your body, you know that, the, that Jesus is no less the great high priest who is still making intercession on your behalf. That truth does not go away. So these things we together must constantly be reminding one another of. We must, like in, like Jeremiah says in, ver, in verse 21 of chapter 3, call this to mind. Call to mind the truth that we know to be uh, apparent about who God is. And for his people, God is always present. He has taken up his residence in us. And this moves us then to the next, the next takeaway. This is the final thing that we'll talk about this morning. The suffering that Jerusalem experienced was a small-scale rendering of the suffering that Jesus would endure. The suffering that Jerusalem experienced was a small-scale rendering of the suffering that Jesus would endure. The sin of the people... In not keeping God's law, we see some things carrying, going, moving up into the destruction of Jerusalem, in particular the rejection of the prophets, the following of, of defective leadership, the ignoring of the warnings. This leads to the outpouring of punishment from God. But for us, again, to reiterate this, in Jesus, in Jesus... Punishment is diverted off of us and on to him. If Jesus endured suffering on our behalf, then why do we still suffer? We ask that question. Well, then why do we still suffer? If, if that suffering was on our behalf, then why do we still suffer? Why do bad things still happen? If God is always present and is good, then why do we have hard times and trials and grief and persecution? Because there's been a shift in what that means for us. It's no longer, no longer bearing the punishment of God because that's been born for us in Jesus. But what it is doing, it is producing Christ-likeness in us. If people ask, if God is good, then why do I suffer? Maybe that's the wrong question to ask. The question that you might need to ask, and this is exactly the point that I was trying to make out of chapter 3, verses 20, 22 through maybe 25-ish, is this. If God is good, how could you not? If God is good, how could you not? If God is not fashioning you into the image of his son Jesus, then how is he good? The fact of the matter is, he is doing that. He's using the trials, the persecution, the suffering in your world to fashion you into the image of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, that is the greatest joy that you can have. The greatest joy that you can have is to be fashioned into the image of Christ to with joy carry out what God has commanded to us, not because it's duty or obligation. We don't show up on a Sunday morning because we think to ourselves, oh man, i got to get out and i got to do my checklists. But we show up on a Sunday morning because of the expression of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. God's primary means for us to become more like Jesus is suffering, tribulation, trial. Consider the opening thought to the book of James. 
This is verse 2, beginning of verse 2 in chapter 1 of the book of James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No longer is punishment coming upon you, but you have peace with God. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In both these texts, both James and Paul affirm that suffering is meant to produce something in you. Endurance, character, hope, the list goes on and on. This is Christ-likeness. And so just one thought. As we move to the Lord's table, just consider that big idea that I said at the outset. And as we look at Lamentations 2 and 3, and we look in particular at verses uh, 25 or 22 through 25 in chapter 3, that all God does in His restorative work is an expression of His love, His mercy, and His faithfulness, and His sufficiency. When we look and when we see the mourning and the devastation, the grinding of teeth on gravel and the, the target practice for archery and, and all of these things, that the, all these metaphors that we see here in Lamentations, we understand that those things are being done as part of God's restorative process. It is loving for God to do that. It is, it is merciful for God to do that. It is faithful. It is, a, it is an expression of God's faithfulness to do that. It is an expression of God's sufficiency for him to do that. Why is that? Because God is just. And then as we look at those things, as we look at those, the, the, all the mourning and the grief that we see coming up to that passage, we understand that, that all of that is no longer for us, but it is placed on, on Jesus. So in the small scale, God demonstrated his love and mercy and faithfulness and sufficiency to Israel through bringing about devastation to Jerusalem for the sake of restoration. But on the large scale, and this is the gospel, this is the truth of the gospel, on the large scale, God demonstrated his love, mercy, faithfulness, and sufficiency to the whole world through bringing about devastation on his son for the sake of restoration. So when Jeremiah writes then, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for me, the soul who seeks him. So when he writes that in verses 22 through 25, it's not in spite of the grief in the morning. But it's the undercurrent of God's nature that calls into focus God's unwavering 